Well, good morning. So Josh began a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue that this morning. So I'll be opening in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. I did not look that up in the Pew Bible, so I don't know what page that is. But you can find it in the index if you need it. But, but the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to finish the third chapter of Mark's Gospel this morning. So as you're turning there, let me pray, and then we'll begin. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful this morning to be here, gathered as the people of God, to worship you. It is a privilege and an honor that we are here, that we can sing praises to you, that we can sit through Sunday school classes, and that we can be here to hear the preaching of the word without any threat of persecution. So God, we thank you for that honor and that privilege. We thank you for the freedom that you give us in Jesus Christ, freedom from the power of sin and darkness. And God, we ask that this morning as we examine your word, that it would be your word that speaks to us and that it would speak to the very heart of who we are. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've gotten to Mark chapter 3 in your Bibles, you may have noticed that the very last paragraph in Mark's gospel, which is what we're going to cover, has a subheading over it. And the subheading is something to the effect of Jesus' mother and brothers, or Jesus' family, or, or something to that effect. And so when we look at this passage, without even reading the passage, we have an idea that this has something to do with family. And I think I speak on behalf of, of most of us here this morning that family means a lot to us. Family has a great deal of importance. Even just the word, when we think about family, when I say the word family, many of your thoughts are probably instantly going to relatives, maybe mom and dad, maybe siblings, maybe children. Our minds are going in all these different directions thinking about people who mean a lot to us, people that we care a lot about. And so just this last Friday night, Sam and I were, were sitting on the couch watching some of our favorite TV shows, and this is after we had put Graham to bed. And Graham had just decided that he didn't want to sleep. Friday night, and so he's moaning and whining in his, in his crib, and so we pause the show, and we go in, Sam gets him up, tries to calm him down, get him to sleep. It works for about five minutes, and then we're, we're, right as we put the show back on, he starts whining and, and crying again, and so I go in, and you know, we do this for maybe, you know, 20, 30 minutes, and then sure enough, we turn the TV show back on, and it comes again. And so I'm like, all right, well, let's just bring him out here for a few minutes, and maybe he'll calm down and fall asleep on us or something. So I bring him out, and he's, he's laying in my lap, and he's got his little pacifier in, and I'm just trying to rock him, trying to calm him. And I say, Graham, don't you know that it's time to sleep? And he found something about that just hilarious, and so he gets this big old grin on his face, pacifier falls out, and he just starts giggling. And it's late, you know, and so Sam and I are kind of tired, and I think we all know that when we're tired, things just seem to be a little more funny. So Sam and I just lose it, and we are laughing hysterically by the fact that he just decided out of nowhere that instead of whining, he's going he's gonna to laugh. And so Sam and I are laughing hysterically, and Graham is watching us, and he's seeing us laugh, and so he's feeding off of us, and so then he starts giggling more, and so we are just like losing it. We got tears where our abs are hurting, and it's just the funniest moment. And I think all of us have probably had moments like that with our family members. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with your, your parents or your siblings. And we've all had moments like this that mean a great deal to us, and we will never forget them. Because as we think about family, that's, that's typically what we think about. 
And so as we look at this passage this morning where we encounter Jesus and his mother and his brothers, there is a lot that we need to learn about family, specifically the family of God. So let's look at this passage. Let's read verses 31 and following to the end of the chapter. Mark's gospel says this. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. So an interesting passage this morning, and there's three things that I want us to see. The first two, which seem to be completely unrelated, but you'll see how they relate here in just a minute. The first point I want us to see is that Jesus is a teacher. Jesus is a teacher. The second point is that the teacher is not easily distracted. The teacher is not easily distracted. And our third point is that Jesus teaches who really belongs to the family of God. So Jesus is a teacher. Jesus, the teacher, is not distracted. And Jesus teaches who really belongs to the family of God. So my first point is that Jesus is a teacher. And so I get this from context. So we've started Mark chapter 1, and we've, we've followed all the way up to this point. And if you are paying attention in Mark's gospel, you'll see that Mark is pointing out the fact that Jesus truly is a teacher. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. So here we see Jesus is going into a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he takes advantage of an opportunity to teach. Flip over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, When they had returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So again, a large crowd comes, a large crowd is there around Jesus, and he's taking this opportunity to teach and to preach. If we look at the end of, of chapter 2, and, uh, about the question about fasting, and uh, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, we have people coming to Jesus with questions, and Jesus is using those opportunities to teach them. So Jesus is clearly a teacher, but we also know that he's not just any teacher. Jesus is a good teacher. If we look back at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21 and following, we see that Jesus is uh, on the Sabbath. He's in the synagogue and he's teaching. And verse 22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching as one with authority. Which helps us understand that when, when we read in, in Mark's gospel that there are plenty of people, lots of crowds that are drawn to Jesus, it's because he is a great teacher. He is teaching as one with authority. So Jesus is a great teacher. We see that. There are large crowds of people following him. But what I want us to notice in our passage this morning, verses 31 through 35 is that Jesus is a good teacher and he's using every opportunity to teach. Jesus is using every opportunity to teach. So look at the passage again. 
So his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now, verse 32 tells us that, again, there's a big crowd around Jesus. A crowd was sitting around him, and they sent to him. So picture this. Jesus is here, and there's a large crowd of people around him because he's a good teacher. People want to hear what he has to say. So people are there to hear Jesus. There's a large crowd, so large that his family can't just walk in and and grab him and say, Hey, can we ask you a question? This crowd is so great, and there's so many people that they have to play the telephone game. Say, hey, can you tell that guy over there, the guy that's teaching, he's my son, and I just would like to know uh, what time he's coming home for dinner. So they can't even get access to Jesus because so many people are crowded around. So then they tell the crowd, hey, get Jesus' attention for us. So the crowd does just that. In verse 32, they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, if any of you all are are teachers or if you've ever taught in any sort of setting, distractions can be very difficult to deal with. So if one of y'all were to stand up right now and start going crazy and start yelling and screaming and carrying on, it would be very difficult for me to continue saying what I'm saying without being distracted, without my mind going other places thinking, what in the world? So typically, distractions are not things that we look forward to if we are teaching others. We don't like distractions. And we don't know if Jesus enjoyed distractions or not, but well, we see what he does with this one. So Jesus is teaching. There's a, there's a crowd of people around. His family comes and says, hey, can you get his attention for us? And verse 33, we see that Jesus is not distracted by this interruption. Jesus is not drawn off guard. Jesus is not like lost for words. He has no idea what to say. But rather, Jesus uses this interruption by the crowd as an opportunity to continue teaching. That's a good teacher. About a little over a year ago, I started a new job at Humana. And I have no background in medical anything or, uh, you know, stuff like that. And so, thankfully, the job that I'm, I'm doing at Humana is not something that I have to know a lot of medical terminology. But still, there was a lot for me to learn when I started this job. And so, I had a boss who happens to be an ex-school teacher. And so that was great for me because he was, like Jesus, a phenomenal teacher. He was great at helping me understand things. He was great at using real-life situations as an opportunity to teach. Because we all know that if we sit through a course and, you know, maybe we, we watch some lectures or whatever it is, and it's just dry, boring information, that, that can be hard to retain that information. But as soon as you get out into the real world, here's a real-world application. Here's how you're going to use this training, and we see it done firsthand. That is so much more valuable. And my boss was so good at doing these types of things. Hey, there's a report request. I'm going to show you how to use this tool to search this database and get this information. And him doing simple things like that helps me to really grasp my role and my job. And so I'm thankful for him. And so here we see Jesus using every single opportunity, even when he's interrupted, Jesus is thinking, here's another opportunity for me to teach you something else, something else that you need to know. And so he uses this this break in his concentration as an opportunity to teach. So one of the things that we should notice as we see clearly in Mark's gospel that Jesus is a teacher, is that the Great Commission should come as no surprise to us. Are we all familiar with the Great Commission? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So right there in the Great Commission, there is a command for us, followers of Jesus, to be teaching others. Because Jesus has taught us. Jesus is not telling us to teach others even though we have never been taught. You see, Jesus came as a teacher. And Jesus was teaching those who would listen. And what Jesus does in turn is say, now you go and do as I have done. Teach others. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus does not just send us out without having equipped us first. Jesus teaches us so that we can in turn become teachers and go teach others. But, if we are going to be obedient to Jesus and his call in the Great Commission to teach others to observe all that he has commanded, we must also first be submitting ourselves to the teaching of Jesus. We must be sitting at the feet of Jesus and soaking in what he is teaching. Because Jesus continues to teach to this day. That's, that's what he does through the Bible. We don't have Jesus walking the earth as he did 2,000 years ago, but we have the words that have been recorded about his life that continue to teach us Christians as we read it, as we hear the word preached. We need to be submitting ourselves to the teaching of Jesus so that we are equipped and able to then go and teach others. So the first thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is a teacher. Now, that's going to be important here in a minute, but, but just, just stay focused with me. The second thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is not distracted. The teacher is not distracted. So we kind of touched on this just briefly, but we also need to bring in the bigger context. It's, it's easy for us to just look at this small little passage and try and understand what it means, but, but it takes on even greater meaning when we see the bigger passage that it falls into. So last week, Josh preached on the unforgivable sin, which is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And so look back with me at verse 22. So we see that the scribes came down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, He, referring to Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So Jesus' enemies, the scribes, those who don't like the ministry that he's doing, those who are against what Jesus is doing when healing people, preaching forgiveness of sins, they don't like that. They are opposed to that. And what they are saying as their way of discrediting Jesus is they're saying he only does these things because he is the prince of demons. He is Beelzebul. He is the devil himself. Now, I'm sure all of us have people that we don't get along with very well. Or we have people maybe in the workplace that we're, we're kind of competing against them for, for the next promotion. Or maybe it's friends that, you know, we're trying to compete and, and say, you know, we're the best at this or we're the best at that. And so there's always people who are trying to, to put us down, to get us under. And so we see that Jesus has enemies just like anyone else. The scribes are opposed to what he's doing. They don't want his ministry to be successful. And they are doing whatever they can to stop him. And his enemies are saying, you are only doing the things that you do because you are the prince of demons. Beelzebul. Now think about this. Jesus is God. He's the son of God. 
And for his enemies to be saying that he is the devil must be hard for him to hear. It must be hard for those around him to hear. Jesus being called the devil. But Jesus is not distracted by those who are hating him, those who are trying to slash him, those who are trying to discredit his ministry. Jesus continues to push on. Jesus has his eyes set on the cross. He knows what he has, came to, what he has come to do, and Jesus is going there. And, and despite this distraction by his enemies, those who are trying to, to get him off course, trying to, to pull him away, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to be distracted. But then we notice in this passage, and even connected back to verses 20 and 21, it says, when he went home, a large crowd gathered again. So they could not even eat. So again, a large crowd is coming to be around Jesus, so many people that they can't even eat. And verse 21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. So this, this passage right here leads me to believe that when we pick up here in verse 31, again reading about Jesus' mother and brothers, the chances are they are coming to find Jesus in order to tell him, You're crazy. Why are you doing these things? You don't need to do this. You've done enough. Enough with the big crowds, enough with the miracles, enough with all this. Just stop. Enough already. And so, think about the, the situation that Jesus is being put in. His enemies are opposing him. They're trying to discredit him, trying to slander him, get people to think wrongly about him. So he's having to deal with his enemies. And then, you think that his safe place would be home those whom he has grown up with, those whom he has eaten with, those whom he has slept beside, those whom he has funny stories with growing up. And it seems like even his own family is telling him, come on, that's enough. You've tried hard enough. You don't need any more of this. Just cool it. And I wonder how discouraging that may have been for someone like Jesus. He knows what he has come to earth to do. He knows the goal is to accomplish death on the cross to save sinners. And here, his enemies are trying to prevent that. And even his own family is trying to tell him, you're, you're doing too much. You don't need to do all this. But yet, even in spite of his enemies trying to stop him, his family trying to discourage him, Jesus is not distracted. Jesus knows what he has come to do. He has set his face towards Jerusalem, and he knows that he is going to the cross. And he's doing that for the joy that was set before him. Listen to these words of the, the author of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith or the hall of fame for those who've had faith. And in chapter 12, the author follows that up with some great encouragement. Listen to these words that he says. This is Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. He says, Since therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And verse 3 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against 
himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, you and me, if we are leaving here on a Sunday morning and going out into the world, and if we are living intentionally for Jesus, if we are intentionally trying to spread the gospel, to share the good news with those around us, we will inevitably run into people who hate our message. They hate what we stand for. They hate what we preach. They hate what we are all about. And they will try everything they can to discourage you, to slander you, to make others not believe your message. And I'll tell you what, if you have met those people, if you have lived among those people, it can be greatly discouraging. And then, if you come home to a family who does not believe and they're telling you the same thing, come on, you don't need to be doing that. You don't need to go share the God. Just be nice, you know, just be a good person. That's plenty. How difficult must that be? But that's what Jesus dealt with. Jesus dealt with an unbelieving family, unbelieving brothers, people who hated him and everything he stood for. But yet Jesus gives us an example. He says he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And the author says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. You're not the only one who's been there. Jesus has been there. Jesus knows that feeling. Jesus knows what that's like. And he says, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. See, all of us, I think, know that throughout life, as we exert ourselves in whatever it is that we do, the more we give to certain things, the more it drains our batteries. And so if we're out there each and every day sharing the gospel, proclaiming the good news about Jesus, and we're constantly being slandered, 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 and our family is not even building us up, but they're discouraging us, trying to say, that, that's, that's enough, you don't need to do any more, we will grow weary and faint-hearted. Which is why we need to look to Jesus who in that same situation did not give up, did not grow weary, did not grow faint-hearted, but continued to keep his eyes on the cross, knowing that it was the joy that was set before him. We need to be looking to Jesus. If you all are sitting here this morning and you're discouraged by life, you're discouraged by those who try and, and, and put you down, you need to look to Jesus for encouragement so that you don't grow weary and faint-hearted. Jesus is where we find encouragement when we feel beaten down, like our batteries are empty, like we can't go on any further. We need to look to Jesus. My third point is that Jesus teaches who belongs to the family of God. Now, this point is, is the most important point concerning this passage because this is really what the passage is all about. Jesus not being distracted is, is, I see that in the greater context, and Jesus being a teacher, I see that in the greater context, but right here in this passage, we have a very clear explanation and a teaching of Jesus of who really belongs to the people of God. Who is the family of God? And that's the question that we have answered here. So Jesus explains it in this way. Jesus answers these people who have brought this question 
or have brought this to his attention, and Jesus answers it with a question. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? So Jesus is using questions to get people thinking, probably a rhetorical question. I don't think he's, he's expecting an answer. And then in verse 34, he continues and says this, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. But then he gives even more clarity in verse 35. He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so now the question for us is, well, who, who does the will of God? Who does the will of God and who is Jesus' mother and brother and sister? And so if we have been familiar with the Bible or if you've been around church, if you've grown up in church, you probably have a little bit of familiarity with the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, we understand that the people of God are the Israelite people. Because in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. And he says, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He also tells Abraham that his offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars in heaven. Have you ever looked up on a dark night and seen all the stars? There's no way you're counting those things. As a kid, I used to look at all my freckles and try and count them. You can't even do that. There's way less freckles on my, my face and arms than there are stars in the sky. And so God promised Abraham that his family was going to be massive. You can't count them. And then in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see even a little bit more clarity about this call. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so in the Old Testament, we see it pretty clear that the Israelite people are those who belong to God. And, and today, may, many people still believe this. It's been a while since I've been in the Navy, but I remember on my last deployment, I was deployed with a guy who is ethnically Jewish. And he, I remember a conversation where he told me, I know that I'm going to be saved and I'm going to go to heaven because I'm Jewish. That was, that was his line of thinking. And I was a young Christian at the time, and I honestly had no idea how to refute this line of thinking, but I, I didn't think that that was right. But I had nothing to say. But I'm sure he's not the only one. There are plenty of people who read this Bible and they come away thinking, well, if, if you're a Jew or, or ethnically descended from the people of Israel, then you are the people of God. But Jesus, knowing that this question is looming, because think about when this takes place. This is not that far removed from the Old Testament. There's about 400 years of silence before Jesus' birth. And then this is, you know, 30-ish years later as Jesus is starting his public ministry, many people may be thinking, well, who can be the people of God? Or who can be forgiven of their sins? And Jesus, being the good teacher that he is, is thinking ahead, knowing the questions people might have before they even have them. 
And when Jesus is interrupted by his family, he knows this is the perfect opportunity for me to teach you who really are the people of God. Is it just those who are descended from Israel? Is it only those who are ethnically Jewish? Or is it broader than that? Now, Jesus teaches us clearly in verse 35 that it's whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and mother. So Jesus is not saying, yes, it is for sure. The Old Testament was absolutely right when it's only Jewish people. Jesus does not say that. So then we kind of are thinking, well, has God changed his mind? Has God just decided, Old Testament, you know what? I thought the Jewish people would be great as my people, but New Testament, I got a different idea. Let's try something new. I'm going to have a different people. So has God changed his mind, or has it been this way, the way Jesus is explaining it the whole time? And I would say to you that nothing has changed. God did not change his mind about who his people would be, but the promise is based on whoever does the will of God the whole time. So in the book of Romans, flip over with me to Romans chapter 4. Paul gives a helpful explanation concerning the people of God and Abraham. So Abraham is is the one in Genesis chapter 12 that this promise was given to. And Paul helps us with, with some of this clarification and understanding who God said that his people would be. So in verses 7 and 8, it's a quote from Psalm 32. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so clearly that psalm is talking about forgiveness of sin. So in in verse 9 of Romans 4, Paul asks a question. Is this blessing, talking about the blessing of forgiveness of sin, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the sign of being the the people of God was circumcision. And so God made all the people who are Israelites be circumcised. That was the mark of you being my people. So now Paul is asking this question. Is this blessing, those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, uh, blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin, is that blessing only for the circumcised? Meaning... Those who are of Israel? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? Now follow this argument. He says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it counted to him before or after he had been circumcised? So was Abraham's faith in God counted to him as righteousness before he got circumcised or not until after he got circumcised is the question that Paul is asking. He says, it was not after, it was before he was circumcised. And verse 11 says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of all of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So to follow this argument, Paul is saying God never ever intended the people of God to only be those who are ethnically Israelites. He intended it to be those who had faith like Abraham. 
He said Abraham's faith in God was counted to him as righteousness apart from circumcision. Circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham being counted as righteous when he had faith in God. So God has not changed his mind. God has not decided, well, it's a New Testament, it's time for a new people. It has always been those who have faith in God are descendants of Abraham. They are the receivers of promise. They are the family through which all nations will be blessed. And so now we read in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is clarifying to the crowds that are there who really belongs to the people of God. Is it just ethnically Jews? Jesus says no. It's whoever does the will of God. So for us this morning, we need to know that to be a part of the family of God has nothing to do with your ethnic background. To be a part of the family of God has nothing to do with how you were raised, where you were raised, who your family is, who you know. It has nothing to do with any of that. To be part of the family of God, Jesus says, it's those who do the will of God. So our next question must be, well, what is, what is the will of God? And without going too deep into it, the most basic understanding of the will of God is that we would believe in God. God desires that those would know him. All of his, his created people would know him. That is God's will for your life. If you are wondering, what in the world does God want from me? The very first thing you should know is he wants you to believe in him. He wants you to have faith in him. He wants you to trust in him. There are, there are many other aspects to God's will. But first and foremost, know this. God's will is that you would know him. That you would trust him. That you would place your faith in him. That's the promise he made to Abraham. The promise is through faith. Those who have faith in God are doing the will of God and are the people of God. Jesus knows that we may be confused on this. And being the good teacher that he is, he helps us understand before we even know to ask the question. And so for us this morning... As we consider who are the people of God and, and who can be the people of God, maybe you're sitting out here thinking, I've done too many bad things. I have lived such an awful, wretched, wicked life. How could I ever be counted among the people of God? In the context of Mark's gospel, Mark is brilliant. If we were to ask Mark that question... He would say, read verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Last week, as Josh preached this passage, we read that all sins will be forgiven the children of man and every blasphemy that they utter. 
Do you think that you have sinned too much so that you can no longer become part of the family of God? You are wrong. You can be forgiven. No one sitting in this room has sinned too much so that God would not be willing to forgive. God is willing to forgive so long as you don't reject the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. It may be crazy to say, but ISIS terrorists can be in the family of God. They can be forgiven. They can have their sins atoned for. As well as you and me. We all are sinners. No one deserves to be in the family of God. But by the grace of God, he sent Jesus, who is teaching us. And not only is he teaching, but he is going to the cross. And he goes to the cross. And he dies on the cross. He sheds his blood on the cross. He's put in the grave. And three days later, he rises from the dead, conquering death, so that whoever would look to him in faith can be forgiven of their sins and be part of the family of God. It is the most important aspect of our life to know whether or not we belong or do not belong to the family of God. And I hope that you know that to not belong to the family of God is to be eternally separated from Him, to experience His wrath, God is calling us this morning to look to his son that he sent in our place to be forgiven of our sins by looking at the cross and trusting that his sacrifice is enough to cover all of our wrongdoings. If you don't know whether you are in the family of God or not, you need to come and, and ask and, and inquire and, and pray and seek that you would be forgiven of your sins. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a gracious and loving God. You have sent your Son to atone for our sins, that by looking to Him, we can have forgiveness of all of our sins. And we can become children of the living God. God, I pray that if anyone in here is wondering if they belong, if they are included in the people of God, that they would not just think about that, but they would act upon that. That they would cry out to you in prayer, knowing that you are a God who hears our prayers. And God, you always hear the prayers of those who are crying out, asking for forgiveness. God, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.